Thank you. You may be seated. It is such a blessing to celebrate this Father's Day with you. We're going to take a moment and dismiss the children to Children's Church. You see Amy over here to the left. If there are any kids that would like to go out, uh, they're welcome to. I know there are some probably meeting her in the hallway as well. Uh, Thank you for being here as a part of our Father's Day service. I do want to begin today uh, with a simple question. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind for your children? And that is a question that is good for fathers, but I will also add that that question should be asked of mothers as well. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind for your children? I read an interesting article this past weekend where it talked about the decline of the church, the decline of Christianity in America. This is something that has been taking place now for many years, but this article in particular was unique because it identified the real problem as being what happens in the home. And while some of the responsibility will fall upon mothers, the greatest responsibility will fall upon dads. In fact, I want to share a quote with you. And then I'll explain it in normal people's language, because truthfully, I had to read it about four times just to understand what it meant. Closeness to fathers matters more than closeness to mothers in religious transmission. Among evangelical fathers, there is a 25-point difference in the professed faith similarity between parent-child for children who feel emotionally close to their fathers compared to those who are not close. For evangelical mothers, the difference is just one percentage point. A similar pattern exists for mainline and Catholics. The idea here is that when a father is the spiritual leader in the household, there is a far greater likelihood that the child will follow suit. Moms, please don't take this as an insult. I'm not saying that you don't matter. Believe me, you do. But your impact on spiritual matters is hardly noticeable. Not to say it doesn't matter, but listen, too many dads have neglected their responsibility to lead their families well in spiritual matters. So to dumb this down for you, as simply as I can, dads, if you want your children to grow up and to become the men and women that God created them to be, then you need to begin by being the man of God that he created you to be. Yesterday, as we had our our fundraiser, there were individuals that came, and I had the privilege of being able to sit and talk with various individuals. One of them, I I won't share a name, uh, because hopefully we'll eventually see them at church, Uh, But one of them shared with me his concern for his little girl. But as he shared, he also shared about some brokenness in his own life. Some poor moral choices that have taken place. And I use those words. If you want your daughter to be the woman that God created her to be, then you need to begin by being the man that God created you to be. If we are to see the church thrive and a generation to follow, we must see men.
become the men that they're supposed to be. Man, I celebrate. Y'all remember earlier this year, there was a revival that took place in Asbury, Kentucky, and there were all kinds of people on this college campus that were responding to God's grace, and it even began to spread to other college campuses, and I celebrate that taking place. But if you want a lasting revival to take place, then men must begin to be the men that God created them to be, not just on Sunday morning at church, but in their homes. This is more than just a once in a while decision. This is an everyday decision to live for Jesus Christ so that your kids will follow in your footsteps. I recently read the testimony of theologian Tom Rayner. He said this, I did not decide to become a Christian because my dad was a pastor. What led me to make my decision could happen to any child. I became a Christian at the early age of seven because I grew up in a home that sought God, his morals, and his principles. Know that it is the greatest thing for you to do to teach your children to follow Jesus Christ. It would be great if you teach your kids to have good work ethic. Actually, it would be an improvement on the culture that we have today. It would be great for you to teach your kids good business principles. It's good for you to teach your kids all the kinds of great skills that they need to succeed in society. But if you do not point your children to Jesus Christ, then you have not fulfilled your calling. In Joshua chapter 4, the Israelites are crossing the Jordan River. And as they do, they take up 12 stones from the bottom of the river in order to set up a memorial. Listen briefly as Joshua explains why they do this. Again, this is in Joshua 4. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan... The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Or in Joel 1, verse 3, Joel is talking about the judgment of God, and he says, tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. The idea in both of these passages, is that a father's faith is to be passed down from generation to generation. Are you passing down your faith to your children? My hope is that the answer is yes. I also want to take a moment and say that fatherhood is about much more than blood and DNA. It is about being there for others. I know that growing up, I did not have a father that was involved in my life. My mom became mom and dad to us. My dad married multiple times. I remember being at my grandmother's funeral, and we were looking at the obituary, and the numbers weren't adding up. It was talking about the number of grandkids that we had, and we were off by two. So I just went and asked my dad, and he shared that I had a brother and sister that were born while he was still married to my mom. So needless to say, my dad was not involved in our lives. But other people stepped up to the plate, and they fulfilled that role in my life. I can remember 
me and my brother would fight a lot. My brother, actually, we fought a lot. One day he, one day he locked himself in the bathroom. Back then, I was bigger than him. I would not want to fight my brother today. He bench presses like 400 pounds. I, there's no desire to, although I still tell him I could take him. I know better. I hope I never have to. Uh, anyways, one day he had locked himself in the bathroom because we were in a fight and he knew that I was mad and I don't know, I guess I just wasn't thinking. I kicked my foot through the bathroom door. Well, at that point, the fight was over because I already know, man, I am in big trouble when mom gets home. And I I waited for her at the door because I wanted to be the one to tell her because I knew that if I were the one to tell her, it would sound better than if my brother told her. So I told her, and I, I know I'm in trouble. She doesn't know what to do, just to be honest with you. She calls the pastor from the church. and He comes over to the house, and I'm expecting maybe a whooping from him or at least for him to yell at me. He didn't. He made me sit with him, and together we patched that door, and we made it right. And I'm going to tell you, it's examples like that. That's where I learned what it is to be a father. It's not about blood. It's not about DNA. It's about being there for other people. Yesterday, I had a young lady reach out to me. She was broken down on the side of the road. She's one of my daughter's friends. I also previously coached her in softball. Her dad passed away several years ago. I told her she made my day yesterday because she called me. You know what she said? That's what you told me to do. (laughs) And that is exactly right. Being a dad is about much more than being a birth father. It is about being there for other people. Maybe today you celebrate your dad as being here, one who has invested in you, but maybe it's not a birth father. Maybe it's someone else who has loved on you and cared for you. It's not always about the one who lives in your home, but it's about the people who are there to invest in you. So to all the dads in the room, thank you. To all those who are not birth fathers, Thank you for the investment that you make in other people's lives. I want to take a moment and dig into the word this morning. As we do, if you remember last week, I started a series that was dealing with the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. But before I do that, there was a man who managed to reach an uninhabited island after a shipwreck. And he decided to protect himself from the elements And to safeguard the few possessions that he had salvaged, he built a small hut. Still, he constantly and prayerfully scanned the horizon for hopes of a ship that might come to rescue him. Returning to his makeshift shelter one evening after a search for food, the man was shocked to see his hut was completely enveloped in flames. What a crushing disaster. As he went to sleep that night, he wept with bitterness toward God. How could you let this happen? The next morning, he awoke to find a ship anchored off the island. When the captain stepped ashore, he said, We saw your smoke signal, and we came. The disciples of Jesus were hurting, but Jesus would see their smoke, their embers, He would make a fire by sending us his Holy Spirit. 
As we began last week, we talked about a passage from John chapter 3, and we're going to begin there again today. In John chapter 3, Jesus is approached by a man named Nicodemus, and last week I looked at a couple of verses. I want to dig just a little bit deeper this morning. This is what it says beginning in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus comes with an agenda. Actually, we're never truly introduced to his agenda. All he did was declare that Jesus must be from God. He refers to him as a rabbi. He is very respectful to him. But Jesus knows what Nicodemus truly needs. So Jesus goes straight to the point. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this phrase, born again, has never been used in the scriptures prior to this statement by Jesus. So what does it actually mean? Well, to different people, it means different things. John Wesley held that the new birth is the great change which God works in the soul when he brings it into life, when he raises it from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. Others have connected it to the act of baptism, as if one is not truly born again until that moment that they are baptized. Still others have concluded that it's what happens when an individual joins a church. Well, even Nicodemus struggled with what being born again actually means. In the words of the theologian Warren Wearsby, it would have made sense for Jesus to say that a Gentile needed to be born again. But Nicodemus was a Jew. He was already born into God's chosen people, into Israel. Why would he need to be born again? But his question was more than an issue of family heritage or birthright. In fact, he questions how being born again could even be possible. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I'm going to suggest to you that being born again is not found in the waters of baptism, nor is it found in your family heritage, nor is it found in your affiliation to some church denomination, even the Wesleyan church. Based on what we are about to see, it is based on the giving of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. This takes us back a little bit to what I've already shared with you. Flesh gives birth to flesh, 
Fathers, we tend to pass certain things along to our children just by nature. We don't even have to try to do it. It just happens. For example, when I was young, I could eat anything I wanted to without consequence. It was a beautiful thing. My sister used to make fun of me and my brother because we had the skinniest legs on the football team. And you know what? She was right. We did. But that eventually caught up to me. And now I have to watch everything that I eat. Likewise, I've watched my oldest son, Andrew, as he was always the thinnest young man that I had ever seen. He's not fat by any means, but I can tell you that he has begun to fill out. It's flesh, naturally giving birth to flesh. We pass things on from one generation to another. Well, the Spirit of God is also something that can be passed down, not necessarily from a father to a son, but from God to his people. Now, I will say, and I've already talked about it, fathers, you need to pass your faith on to your children. But when it comes down to it, each child must make their own decision, but they've got to see it in you first. God has promised that he would give his spirit to his people. It's what God's word had promised hundreds of years prior to this passage being written in John 3. In Joel chapter 2, we see a prophecy about the coming judgment of God. That is very clear that we're talking about the final judgment, which involves earth's destruction. But as Peter is speaking in Acts 2, the Spirit of God makes clear to him that what is talked about in Joel 2 begins on that day in Acts 2. See, it was in Acts 2 when it seems that everything changes for God's people. In the Old Testament, there were multiple examples of individuals who were filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore they spoke miraculous words or they performed miraculous signs and wonders. But truthfully, they were very rare occasions. Moses was led by the Spirit as Abraham was led by the Spirit. The same is true of prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Obadiah. Or consider the prophet Elijah. He was so filled with the Spirit of God that he could call down fire from heaven and even raise a dead child back to life. When the time came for him to be taken from this world, Elisha, the man who would take Elijah's place as a prophet in Israel, he prayed that God would grant him a double portion of the same Spirit which Elijah had. While all that sounds impressive, the truth is that the infilling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was a very rare occasion. It wasn't something that everybody experienced. Very few people did, but on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, all of that changes. 120 people are gathered together in an upper room when the Holy Spirit shows up. Jesus had promised that upon his departure, the Father would send his spirit to comfort, to encourage, to remind his believers of what Jesus had said. Jesus even promised that after Jesus' departure, the followers of Christ would do even greater things than that which he had already done. Truthfully, that seems a little hard to believe. When you think about it, they've seen Jesus calm storms. He's fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. 
They've even seen Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons. How could Jesus' followers do even greater things than that? I'm going to tell you, it wasn't because Jesus had taught them the tricks of the trade. Instead, it is because the Holy Spirit was about to be given to them. So as these 120 believers gather in this upper room, the Holy Spirit shows up again in Acts 2. We're told that suddenly there was something like tongues of fire that rested upon each of them. And then the place where they were gathered was shaken. Next thing you see is crowds of people that begin to pour out into the streets. You have the 120 people, but you also have onlookers who are simply curious. They're coming out of the woodwork to see what is going on. This is crazy. It's like there's an earthquake that's happening over there. What happens is you have all these people many of them who were only in town for an event that was taking place. It was a religious event, but they didn't all speak the same language. Then as the disciples begin to explain what is taking place, the onlookers are astonished. It would seem that although the disciples spoke in their own language, everyone could understand in their own language. So to help explain what's taking place, the apostle Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is huge. I will pour out my spirit on all people. To a people that that was a foreign idea. This is a huge change. It would seem that the Holy Spirit is no longer being given merely to one or two people, as was common in the Old Testament. Instead, the Spirit is being poured out on all those who would follow after Jesus Christ. And last week, I read to you from Titus 3.5. Listen to it again, but this time I'm going to add verse 6. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, the Spirit is being poured out upon us, his children. Let me just say that we are now living in the last days that are mentioned in Joel 2 and Acts 2. These last days began on the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit upon his people when spirit gave birth to spirit. And I want you to know that the same spirit that showed up on that day is the same spirit that is available to us today. In the days that immediately followed this Pentecost event, we see incredible miracles taking place. The lame are healed, the blind receive their sight, even the dead will be raised back to life. And just as God could do such incredible miracles then, I want you to know that he can do them now through his Holy Spirit's presence in his people. So what does that look like in the church today? Because let's face it, we don't always see these recognizable miracles in the modern church. Maybe some of that is our fault. Maybe some of that is merely God's plan. 
Maybe some of it is merely a lack of understanding on our part. Let me cover this first from a Wesleyan theology standpoint. We call it a second work of grace. The first work of grace is what happens when an individual asks Jesus to forgive them of their sins. It is nothing but grace that offers us salvation. That is considered the first work of grace. It's what we talked about last Sunday. But the second work of grace is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon an individual who has received Christ. A great example of this is seen in the story of Philip as he preached to the Samaritans. It's recorded in Acts chapter 8. We see that he proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, and there are many who immediately believe his message. They choose to lay aside their past to embrace the ways of Jesus Christ. They receive a first work of grace. But it would be later when Peter and other disciples arrive that the Holy Spirit would be given to these new believers, the second work of grace. The point is that it wasn't just one step and everything was done. A second work of grace occurred when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And this may make some of us just feel a little bit uncomfortable today. But not everyone in Samaria, not everyone who claimed to follow Christ and the teachings of Philip would receive the Holy Spirit. This is where the problem may be our fault this morning. Acts 8 tells of a man named Simon who claimed to believe. He was even baptized. Yet according to Acts 8.21, it says his heart was not right with God. So this man is actually rebuked by the apostle Peter instead of being blessed by God. You see, the problem is that not everybody who sets out to follow Jesus Christ will truly follow after him. We're not talking about you have to be a finished product. We're talking about hearts instead that are truly devoted to the Lord. I've had conversations with some who seek the Lord merely for his power. They want his blessing. They want him to do something for them. I've seen others who seek the Lord merely to appease a spouse or another family member. I've seen others who seek the Lord in hopes that life would be easy, only to find out later that it is far from easy just because you follow Jesus. And I admit that when I started on this journey, it was primarily to avoid the penalty of death. For me, it was the fear of hell. Know that all of these reasons that people seek the Lord, they can be used for good. As a youth pastor, I used to tell people that I didn't care why people came to my youth ministry. I just wanted them to come so that they could be introduced to Jesus Christ in the process. Well, in the same way, I don't care what got you to the point of seeking Christ or even being at church this morning. But now that you're here, I want you to grow in your faith. I want you to realize that true Christianity is about a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. It is about living in such a way that we bring honor to the name of Jesus. 
author and pastor Jack Hayford wrote about two seemingly unrelated things. A teary-eyed young lady and a crumbly, crumbling building. The young woman sat in his office grieving over a marriage that seemed to be failing. And on that very same day, an earthquake took place in Mexico, toppling buildings with hundreds of people being crushed to death beneath slabs of concrete. He noted that both situations had the same root cause. Their foundations were weak. That's not that the husband of this lady was not a believer. He noted that, in fact, this man, the man of the house, believed in God, but he had a pattern that did not show it. The way he lived, worship was not even a part of his life. Maybe you can relate to him or at least understand his way of thinking. Picture this line of thinking. I believe in worshiping God according to the dictates of my own conscience. I want to worship God, but in my way. I don't think you need to be in church. I simply worship God from my heart, wherever I am. I think you can worship God as much as the mountain, as much in the mountains as in town at church. I want to be honest and sincere about worship, and I don't think people who try to prove their support superiority over others by going to church are any better than me. And it just goes on. There's all kinds of excuses. The author wrote. It's an empty argument concocted by a mind that has rarely, if ever, taken time to assess the shallowness of its foundational thought. Whatever may be correct in the straw man propositions, the basic goal isn't to assure sincere worship, but to avoid commitment to God. Listen to me, dads. If you want to be spirit-led, if you want children who walk in your footsteps and also walk in the Spirit, then you need to become fully devoted to Him. Don't allow anything else to be your excuse, any other cause to lead you. I don't know. Other people have suggested that the Lord is simply not performing the same miracles today that he did in past generations. And maybe that's not because of our disobedient hearts, but maybe a change in God's game plan. I don't know. What I do know is that I have not only heard of God's miraculous works, but I have experienced it firsthand. I actually wonder if perhaps God still longs to do miracles among his people, but maybe our perspective has changed. There are two ways this happens. First, according to James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask God. You know, there was a time in our culture that when a need arose, the first thought we had was to go to the Lord in prayer. For example, if there were a drought, entire towns would gather together to pray, asking God to send the rain. Today, we'll ask God, but usually only when everything else has failed. Or just in passing, maybe we should go back to asking God first. 
But another side of this maybe is that God is still performing miracles, but we're too busy explaining them away. I had a ruptured disc in my back in August of 1997. It was debilitating, yet God healed me. I had a friend who was a chiropractor, and he wanted to better understand what God had done. So he did an x-ray on me in his office. He came back to me, and he was amazed. He said that God didn't really heal my disc. Instead, a bone had grown around the ruptured disc, keeping the nerves from constantly contacting the disc. Now, I can't say that I fully understand what he was saying, but this is what I know. I could not sit or stand without incredible pain, but now I can. And you can give credit to the human body, or you can give credit to the God who created the human body, but I choose to believe that God healed me. And I believe today that God still wants to do incredible works among his people. The point of all of this is quite simply today for us to understand that our God is still real today. He is still all powerful. And I believe today he still wants to pour out his spirit on his people. The scriptures are clear that if you are truly born again, you must be born of the spirit. And that means becoming fully devoted to him and then allowing his spirit to guide your every step moving forward. Can you imagine what God could do through a church full of people who are truly filled with the spirit of God? Can you imagine what God could do if every father in this room allowed the Spirit to guide every step of their lives, can you imagine what God could do not only through those fathers, but through the children who will walk in their footsteps? I believe that God could change the world. The question today is, are you filled with the Spirit of God? If not, I want you to know He wants to fill you with His Spirit. But you must also be willing to follow him with your whole heart. If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we do ask that you would pour out your spirit on your people. Lord, we are surrounded by a group of people here today that they have set aside this day to worship you. And yes, they are grateful for their fathers and the influence that they have had. And Lord, we do celebrate the fact that you have placed incredible people in our lives to show us the way. But Lord, right now, I pray that you would make us a people who will show the way to others. But I pray that you would begin that work in us. First, if there be one here today that does not yet know you, they have not experienced that first work of grace, Lord, I pray that you would reach into our hearts, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we come before you with repentant hearts saying, God, I don't want to be the same person that I was. I need your forgiveness for my sin. Lord, I pray for that first work of grace. Forgive us now and allow us to begin a new journey with you as the Lord of our lives. But I also pray that as we 
have that relationship with you. And maybe this is an, an individual who this is brand new. Or maybe this is an individual who they have made this statement of faith over and over again, yet they have not faithfully followed in your footsteps. But right now, Lord, I pray that you would make us such a devoted people because our hearts are changed. Simon, the guy in Acts 8, he was saying he wanted to follow you, but he wasn't truly changed. His heart had not been changed. Lord, I pray today that you would change our hearts that we would fully seek you with everything that we have and in response that you would pour out your spirit upon us that we might truly show the world what it is to be children of God. But I do pray for our children today. I pray that they would look upon us and they would see what it is to be a child of God, to see what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God, and may they long for the same thing in their own lives. Father, I pray that you would begin to work in their hearts. Father, I thank you today for the moms. I thank you for the moms who for so long they have led the way, sometimes because the dads have not done their part. Lord, I pray that you would bless their faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would help them today to see your spirit move even in their husbands' lives. Father, I pray that you would change this community, this church. I pray that you change our nation. I pray that you change our world. But let it be because the spirit of God was being poured out on your people. Lord, have your way in us. We'll give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to know today that the greatest thing you could ever do is to show Jesus Christ to your children. Make sure you live it in front of them so that as they look at you, they know what a child of God looks like. Dads, I thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your willingness to serve and to sacrifice. Man, I had somebody text me this morning. This isn't in my message, but it still fits. Has someone text me this morning to tell, wish me a happy Father's Day. It's someone who has invested in my kids. And I had to stop and say thank you for what you've done to help my kids be the people they are today. Thank you as a church for being that kind of people. That my kids don't always just have to see it in me. They can see it in you too. Thank you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Go in peace.